Hi, and welcome to the June 2019 edition of the EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today we have Gal Kelmer discussing the use of medical-grade honey in wounds, and Andrew Van Epps talking about digital hypothermia in laminitis. Gal Kelmer is an equine surgeon and head of the hospital at the Veterinary School of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, Israel. He joins us to discuss the recent paper titled Intralesional Application of Medical-Grade Honey Improves Healing of Surgically Treated Lacerations in Horses. Gal, thank you very much for joining us to talk about your recent paper in EVJ on medical-grade honey and how it improves the healing of surgically treated lacerations. Could you start by telling us what methods of treatment are currently favoured in treating equine wounds? Thank you. Thank you for the questions. Um, Currently, we treat uh, equine wounds in a variety of ways. and they're very, very different ways. And usually when there's too many, too many ways to treat a problem, it's a sign that none of it is uh, uniformly successful. Um, and that is exactly the issue with equine wounds. Uh, equine wounds are healing much worse than really most, if not all other animals. So they're very challenging to, to treat. Uh, we use different, uh, different uh, gas, uh, different... Uh, preparations that we put on, like uh, local antibiotic ointment and uh, local uh, um, other types of uh, local medication like silver ionized gel, things like that. Um, In severe wounds, we have been using a vacuum-assisted closure, but uh, it's cumbersome. It has a lot of limitations. It does a good job, but it has a lot of limitations practically to work with. Um, and we use a lot of uh, local antibiotic therapy, such as region, mainly regional imperfusion, uh, in order to treat the infection. And what kind of efficacy do these treatments provide? Well, it, it really depends a lot on the timing that the treatment commences. So if the, if the wound is fresh um, and the owner or the vet or whoever brings the horse brings it early, then tremendously increase the chances of success. Uh, the more chronic the wound, the, the slower the healing and the less chance that we'll be able to treat it properly. But even wounds that are fresh, the success rate that is reported and the success rate that we see in, uh, in the traumatic lacerations is, is, is very low compared to other. We talk about between 30 and 50% of, uh, like of complete healing after one uh, suturing of a laceration that was traumatic. I'm not talking about incision, but on a, on a traumatic laceration. So what benefits do honey, or does honey provide um, currently when treating contaminated wounds over the other treatments you've discussed? Um, honey has several advantages. It's, it not only treats the infection, but it also... Uh, encourage the healing. It uh, brings a new neovascularization and uh, it uh, acts as an analgesic also in a way because it decreases the inflammation. It also acts as uh, it decreases the smell that the wounds are often uh, have like the, the bad odor. It quickly like within 
half a day or 12 to 24 hours it decreases the smell and basically encourages the healing in, in many ways and it has several at least five different mechanisms of action that it does it it's not only just the uh, the concentration of sugar which is one of the mechanisms but definitely not the only one and what's the difference between medical grade honey over basic honey that you can buy I think in a lot of instances, basic honey can can help wounds, but the main the main advantage of the medical grade honey is that it's actually sterilized uh, by gamma radiation. Uh, so it does have it keeps all the active ingredients and all the positive enzymes that are, helps to the incision to heal and the wound to heal. But it doesn't have the spores and the bacteria that can naturally occur in honey. So it's basically, it has all the positive traits, but without the risk of causing infection. Okay, so what was your study design in this paper and the inclusion criteria? The study is obviously the initial study. Uh, we still uh, plan to look in, into other ways to compare honey to other treatments. But this study was looking at the... Uh, wounds that occurred in the field, so horses that were wounded, natural causes like hitting a tree or bites by another horse or any kind of trauma. Um, and then that the vet was actually called to treat the horse and to suture the laceration or the, the wound. Um, and then the criteria was that the vets were um, included in the study agreed to treat the, the wound randomly, so they were not allowed to say, okay, this one I would treat with honey because it uh, looks better and the other one I would, lose, I would not use honey because I'm worried or anything like that. They had to use it in a random fashion. Um, so it's basically was that the, that the fact that arrived at the scene uh, decided that it needs to be sutured, that it needs to be repaired, uh, and that the vet uh, was uh, agreed to participate in the study by randomly assigned to either treatment or control. So when the um, practitioner was treating a horse with medical-grade honey um, in one of the treatment groups, what methods did they use to treat the lacerations? Um, the practitioner basically did everything that he does on the wound. So he did initial cleaning and then debridement as necessary. Uh, lavage, so uh, uh, lavaging the wound with the LRS or with any kind of solution. Um, and then instead of closing it at that stage, at the typical way that he closes it, placing the honey inside and then closing. So the main, the, the innovation here is that, not that we used honey or not that the practitioner used honey, but the innovation is how the honey was used because the honey was used inside the, the wound. And that's really the, 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 the innovative thing here, that the, the honey was not placed on the wound after closure, but inside the wound prior to closure. Um, and that's, uh, that's, the, that's the difference between this and, and, and other studies on honey. And how did you assess the outcome of each group? The outcome was assessed by... Uh, First, whether there was 
any infection or not. Um, and then whether if there was an infection judged by either cultural sensitivity or by clinical assessment of drainage, uh, the kind of drainage and, and the essence of the incision, so how much of it opened up or did not heal properly, uh, as opposed to how much of it healed by primary closure, by primary intention. Um, and then the, the other criteria was the satisfaction of the, of the veterinarian uh, from the from the treatment, so whether the veterinary was happy with how did the laceration healed or not, uh, and that is related. That is actually a severe criteria because it takes into account of how severe was the laceration. So, if the laceration was really severe, we having a crushing tissue and damaged tissue and dead, you know, dead debris in the and it's still healed, and, and so the veterinarian was, was satisfied. So it's quite uh, um, taking into account all the, all the different aspects of the laceration, not just whether it's healed or not. Um, so so it, it is a pretty strict criteria, but it's the, the inclusion criteria the, in the beginning, it's uh, randomly allocated, so it is a random, uh, but the assessment is not, 100% random because the owner knew the horse, the veterinarian knew the horse. It's not that they were blindly evaluating the horse. So how many cases did you manage to um, include in the study? Um, and what was the kind of population of horses uh, used? Um, so the, the, the over 100 horses, 109 horses were uh, included in the study. Uh, they were all over the, the age-wise. They were um, mostly adult horses, a few younger horses, uh, a few older horses, and mostly between two and uh, fifteen years of age. Uh, the very mixed population of breeds, uh, similar to the population we have in Israel, um, and they were also mixed between the genders. So they were both stallions and geldings and females, more females than others, and that also uh, correlates well with the population that we see as uh, clinicians. Um, and regarding to the, it was different, uh, mostly uh, private-owned horses, so not big farm or corporation or anything like that, mostly uh, um, individual owners that have the horse for a leisure or mild athletic activity. It's not like a big farm of sport horses or racing farms or anything like that. So what did you find were the main comparisons between your control groups and those treated with the medical grade honey? So in the, the differences were significant in, in all the aspects. So the... If we compare the signs of infection, um, then in the control group, um, we had uh, significantly uh, more signs of infection than in the treated group. Um, if we look at the complete healing, then over 50% of the horses with the medical grade honey treated healed completely, so all the incision closed completely, compared to only 30% of the control. So it's 20% difference if you look at it 
despite the naked eye, it was definitely significantly different uh, statistically. And with a degree of satisfaction, um, <clears throat> also there was a almost, or not almost, but actually more than double of the veterinarians were satisfied uh, with the medical grade honey compared to the control. Um, so it was in all three aspects that were, that all three parameters that we measured, um, the difference was significantly in favor of the medical grade honey compared to horses that were not treated with the honey. Okay. Is there a particular type of medical grade honey that you advise using? Um, well, it's a good question because there are many different kinds of honey. There are honeys that are made with the uh, different specific types of flowers that are only uh, made in this part of the country and in other. Uh, the one, all I know that we use the uniform and in this study, all the horses received exactly the same honey and it's a soft Elmer-Citran honey. Uh, it has about 40% of active medical grade honey in the, in the ointment. Um, and it's not, I'm saying that, I'm not saying that that's the only type of honey that can be used, but it's important that it will be a medical grade honey uh, overall, like I said before, because of reducing the risk or actually minimizing the, the risk for uh, any kind of a, uh, adverse reaction or infection because of sports. Uh, but we did, we did not compare different types of medical grade honey. We only used exactly that uh, commercially available and the citron honey in all the horses. So we cannot compare it to other types of honey because we didn't use them. Okay. So what would your take-home message for practitioners be? Well, my take-home message is actually clear. I believe, according to the results of this study, and actually, according to since then, since we completed the study, and during that study, I and other clinicians in the clinic and other clinicians that I know, we've used it in in many other occasions, in uh, both in infected wounds and even in elective surgeries, uh, in the same method of putting the honey inside the incision prior to closure. So my take-home message would be that, yes, uh, medical-grade honey is, uh, has definitely advantage over other methods of treatment, and it's definitely another adjunctive therapy. It's not a cure-all, it's not a magic, but it's definitely something that one should think of before it's closing an incision in a horse because we're standing, we're facing such a devastating results when we have infection that anything we can add in order to prevent them is definitely something we should positively consider and not just uh, ignore it. So I think the results are significant and that, uh, that it should be considered to, treat, to use in basically any elective incision and in all infected wounds. Well, Gal, thank you very much for um, your time today to talk us through the study. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks a lot for the attention and hopefully it will go through. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Andrew Van Epps is an internal medicine specialist and associate professor of equine musculoskeletal research at the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine. He joins us to discuss the recent paper titled Continuous Digital Hypothermia Prevents Lamella Failure 
in the euglycemic, hyperinsulinemic clamp model of equine laminitis. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us this morning to talk about your recent paper. Um, no, you're welcome. Thank you. Could you start by telling us how endocrinopathic laminitis usually presents clinically? Well, it can present in a lot of different ways. There's um, uh, horses can definitely, and ponies can definitely uh, develop it very insidiously. So, uh, laminitis can be simmering away in the background, and they can have fairly advanced lesions by the time they show any lameness. And that's been highlighted even recently by uh, a paper that was published in the EBJ from Lisa Tadros and, and co that showed that um, even though about 75% of, of uh, horses that presented for PPID had some evidence of chronic laminitis, only about half of those had any history or, or even owner recognition of, of lameness or, or laminitis. So it can simmer away in the background. But by the same token, it, uh, many horses have acute episodes, repeat acute episodes on top of chronic um, signs, um, and certainly if they've had access to pasture that's, or, or other feed that's rich in non-structural carbohydrate, they can have acute bouts. So there's a lot of variation in the way horses and ponies present for this form of laminitis. So how's excess insulin proposed to cause laminitis? I think um, we've been through a few different sort of options uh, and most people now feel like there's a direct effect of insulin on the lamella epithelial cells themselves. So, uh, and that effect may be moderated through uh, growth factor signaling. So the insulin, even though there aren't any actual insulin receptors on the epithelial cells, there are other receptors that can accept insulin, including the insulin, insulin-like growth factor, IGF receptor. And I guess the most likely scenario that we think is happening at the moment is that insulin is binding that receptor and causing the stimulation of growth factor signaling pathways, which are telling those cells to uh, change their nature, to enter the growth proliferation cycle. And perhaps that's what is disturbing uh, the structural integrity of the cells, how they connect to other cells and how they connect to their basement membranes. So that is potentially what's disturbing the attachment between hoof and bone. So what were your reasons behind this particular study and what did you hypothesise? We uh, had, had done work showing that cooling hypothermia can help to ameliorate or prevent laminitis caused by sepsis, and that's fairly well accepted now even clinically. Uh, we felt like some of the same pathways may be operating um, in this form of the disease, so we were curious to see as to whether cooling could also prevent or, or ameliorate uh, laminitis development in a model of endocrinopathic laminitis, but rather than it necessarily being something that was clinically focused, we were interested in seeing whether 
uh, firstly, hypothermia would prevent it, but secondly, if it did, what pathways it might be or, or by what mechanism it might be working. So this is as much a, um, uh, a tool to investigate what pathways might be important as it is uh, a step in our clinical understanding. So you use the um, euglycemic hyperinsulinemic clamp model of equine laminitis in your study. Could you talk us through how this is stimulated and how it works? So what we're trying to do is just, is just increase the um, concentration of circulating insulin. But to do that, you need to match that with some, some glucose so that the horses don't become hypoglycemic. So really all the euglycemic hyperinsulinemic clamp is doing is boosting the circulating levels of insulin and matching that with glucose so that their uh, blood glucose levels stay within a fairly narrow range. Okay, so could you talk us through your study design and what method of digital hypothermia was used, um, what the controls were, um, and what your uh, population of horses were? So the population of horses uh, in this study were standard bred horses that were uh, recently recently retired uh, from racing. And um, for this type of research, we, we always try to use the smallest number of, of horses that we can because it is terminal. Uh, so we used eight horses for this study, which is a fairly small number. But the beauty of this study design is that one, we can cool one limb and not the other. So each horse acts uh, as its own control. So one limb is cooled and one is left at ambient temperature, which makes the study more powerful. Uh, and uh, these horses underwent the euglycemic hyperinflation hyperinsulinemic clamp uh, for 48 hours, which is a fairly standard time. And uh, at the end of that, we are most interested in, in the um, histopathology of the, the tissue. So that's how uh, the severity of laminitis was, was um, assessed. So you cooled one limb and left the other at ambient temperature in the same horse? Correct. And the limbs were cooled using uh, ice and water immersion that was, that was constantly replenished. Uh, ice and water immersion tends to be the most effective way of getting good contact and, and, um, and effective cooling. So the ice and water is up to the level of the upper third of the metacarpus and uh, it's uh, constantly replenished. So there's about a 50% ice, 50% water mixture. And how long do you leave this on for? For the, this was for the entire forty-eight hours. Forty-eight hours. Okay. So, what changes did you then assess using histology and immunohistochemistry? So, histologically, there are uh, some grading systems that um, have been have been used in the literature, and we used the original system of Pollock. We had a a uh, board certified pathologist. Dr. Julie Engels uh, blindly assessed the, the sections. We assessed um, lamella sections from three different levels in the dorsal lamella, so proximal, middle, and distal, uh, and they get scored from zero to three uh, according to the severity of this sort of subjective severity of, of uh, laminitis uh, pathology. 
And the other way we look at the tissue is with histomorphometry, so just purely measurements of, um, of primary and secondary lamellae and, and uh, some measurements of how much the basement membrane is retracted and, and how much the lamellae have stretched and lengthened. And, again, they were performed blindly, and that gives us some quantitative um, information about the severity of the structural change. The immunohistochemistry that we used in this paper was for a marker of uh, cell division, um, TPX2, which is a fairly sensitive marker of cells that have entered into mitosis. So one of the things we see with laminitis, and particularly this form of laminitis, is these uh, epithelial cells begin to proliferate into this sort of growth, uh, proliferation death type cycle. And so... The number of cells that are entering that division phase is a good marker of um, uh, the severity of, of the lesions as well. So what clinical differences did you see between the limbs treated with digital hypothermia and the control limbs at ambient temperature? We did not focus on uh, clinical lameness in this study. Uh, in fact, we dosed these horses uh, prophylactically with phenylbutazone to try to avoid um, lameness. Uh, so we didn't specifically assess them uh, in this for actual lameness, and that was purposeful. We were more interested in lesion severity um, and more interested in keeping the horses as comfortable as possible. Okay, so when you assess the epidermal lamellae, um, what were the main differences seen there? In the ambient limbs, there was some pretty severe uh, separation of the uh, dermal and epidermal tissues. And uh, in fact, most of these actually scored the highest. Um, most of these sections scored kind of the highest uh, score for laminitis severity. So uh, structural failure, essentially, of these ambient limbs was um, uh, present in, in more than 90% of the, of the ambient sections. Uh, and in the cooled limbs, it, um, none, of them, none of them had that severe separation at all. So they retained their structural integrity and, and um, were, uh, you know, retained a lot of their normal structural characteristics. There was some mild um, stretching and um, occasional uh, focal basement membrane separation and um, some other mild changes like rounding of nuclei and other minor things that we see, but the structure of the lamellae and the cooled limbs was maintained and preserved. Okay, and um, we talked a little bit about hyperinsulinemia and the proposed mechanisms. Following on from this study, do you have any more insight to the proposed mechanisms um, that are causing laminitis in this model? So we, um, this first paper is uh, the first of um, at least three or four papers that will come from this same research study um, from these same from the tissue of these same horses and what we have got going on now is um, these horses were also fitted with 
uh, microdialysis probes, which are tiny little non-invasive probes that measure uh, perfusion and energy balance in tissue. And so we have uh, a paper that is in preparation that um, evaluated whether there were blood perfusion and metabolic derangements in the feet during the development of this form of, of laminitis. And we also have uh, an, an array of, um, metab- uh, of uh, molecular signaling analysis that has occurred on the tissues from this study, comparing the cooled and the uncooled limbs, focusing on inflammatory markers, uh, growth factor signaling pathways, and also pathways of stretch and other things. Um, and that work is also in preparation and um, uh, and close to submission for publication. So uh, we indeed do have some uh, some new information um, from that, which I probably can't disclose until we've got it in publication. But we um, this this has um, this work has served its intended purpose in that we. Um, we have identified some of the pathways that we think are important, particularly along the growth factor signaling side, and some of which are clearly inhibited selectively by hypothermia. And our hope is that we can target those specific pathways with something that is more clinically practical than digital hypothermia. So what I mean by that is pharmaceutically or pharmacologically target these particular pathways that are inhibited by cooling. So does this um, study change the way you advise practitioners to manage cases of endocrinopathic laminitis? I think it's hard to draw too many conclusions from this in terms of clinical management, uh, particularly because it's almost impossible with sick horses, it's easy to see that they are at risk of laminitis and cool their feet, you know, for for one, two, three days um, to try and prevent it. But with this form of the disease, it's very hard to identify horses at or ponies at risk and specifically cool their feet. However, now that we know that cooling can inhibit the progression of this lesion. I think it does add weight to using cooling as a first aid measure for this form of the disease. So horses and ponies that are experiencing an acute bout of endocrinopathic laminitis, whether um, that involves access to pasture or not, uh, or is precipitated by high non-structural carbohydrate feed, I think those horses, and this adds some evidence Uh, that it's reasonable to use cooling as a first aid measure because we know it can inhibit some of the pathways specific to this form of laminitis. Okay, well, Andrew, thank you very much for um, joining us today. No problem. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening and please join us again in two months for the next episode.